0: Looking for great Catholic books in the Philippines? Check out Dumb Ox Books. Dumb Ox Books is an online Catholic bookstore that offers a wide selection of curated Catholic books from apologetics to the saints to spiritual reading. They have it. Check out their website at dumboxbooks.com.ph. You may also check their Facebook page facebook.com/dumboxbooks. D U M B O X B O O K S. Garmicchuta is our next guest. We talk about his new book Revolt Against Reality, where he traced the source of all our cultural problems. Where else? But from the very beginning. Welcome to the Jay Aruga Show. How is everybody doing? Welcome to the J. Aruga Show. Our next guest is a Catholic author, a speaker, and an apologist. He wrote many books. Among, Among them are Hostile Witnesses, Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, and the book that we'll talk about today is Revolt Against Reality. He hosts a radio show, which is also a podcast entitled Hands on Apologetics. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. Gary Michuta. Gary, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jay. Uh, how are you doing? Merry Christmas, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas to you too and advanced Happy New Year. We're recording yeah. this in between Christmas and, and New Year, by the way, to the audience. Yeah. I'm <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. But it's fine. It's fine. I'm good. I'm good. How is everything on your side of the planet? Well,
1: you know, it's, it, everything's fine, I guess. I mean, it's the usual craziness. Mm-hmm. And it's, just you know, things just seem to get stranger and stranger as time goes on. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, all is good. Can't complain. Yeah, and, that, that, uh, that's why
0: you wrote yeah. the book because of all those craziness in the world, that right, we see right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, because uh, you know you wonder where all this is coming from, and so I wanted to write a book that investigates the deep causes of mm. how we got to where we are today, and hopefully. Uh, when we get a good handle on those causes, we can try to figure out a way to bring people back to sanity mm-hmm. because quite frankly it's getting mm-hmm.
0: more and more insane yep, yep before we get to the book, could you give us a brief background of yourself how do you get to the faith or become interested in apologetics
1: yeah i i'm a uh, cradle Catholic, you know mm. I was born in a Catholic family okay I always was in the in the church, although I kind of was uh I guess you could say a kind of unconscious Catholic, you know, just going through my faith just because that's part of how I was raised. And oh. uh, it was when I got in a, my first full-time job, I befriended a fundamentalist Baptist lady who started challenging me on the faith. Ooh. And, uh, mm. you know, the, the the short version is basically God hitting me over the head with a two-by-four. <laughs> I came to realize that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist in a way that's so real mm. that uh, you know I never fully appreciated it before, and that just spun my whole world around. So I decided I'm going to start studying the faith, learning about it, and all my life I encountered anti-Catholic uh, objections mm. and arguments, and uh, I ran across Carl Keating's book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, mm. and that's where I discovered, wow, there's biblical, historical, logical reasons for everything we believe and do as Catholics. Mm -hmm. So I started a full-time apologetic ministry for a number of years, uh, published a magazine. And then uh, after I got married, I decided to cut back on ministry and just work on um, doing books, writing books, Mm -hmm. uh, giving conferences, talks. Um, I teach homeschool uh, kids Mm -hmm. uh, um, at Homeschool Connections apologetics Mm -hmm. online. And uh you know I got this radio gig for Virgin Most Powerful Radio and mm. and so I'm busier ever you know nice. and oh, and and ultimately yeah that's where these books came from
0: <clears throat> nice nice the, the eucharist is really powerful i hear a lot of conversion stories and reversion stories because of the power of the eucharist
1: Oh yeah yeah, yeah absolutely
0: <clears throat> absolutely
1: and and that's the core of our faith I Yeah. Mean, it's, it's Christ himself
0: That's right that's yeah. right when I read your book, so we're, we'll talk about revolt against reality. <laughs> there's a certain problem, and you mentioned this a while ago: the craziness, the insanity, and you noticed this in the world, world today. And you used a different methodology in determining the root cause of this problem. Can, can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I didn't want to spin a you know conspiracy theory because mm-hmm. you could met. Events in the world, there's usually multiple causes and not mm. just one cause. and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just uh you know, putting together my own view on life. So what I did was I tried to back engineer things and look at the causes of the things today and then uh, and trace it back into history. So I'm going backwards. Mm. My original research was backwards, deeper into mm. history, so I can identify mm. causes that lasted longer and affected more people. Mm. And then when I wrote the book, I switched it around. So it actually begins at the beginning yeah. in the garden, and I carry it all the way up till today. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And for the sake of the audience, the insanity that we're talking about are all the crazy things you see in the West today. Uh, gender ideology, uh, f- uh, radical feminism, the attack on marriage, all those stuff. Am I right? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely,
1: <laughs> and a lot more too. It just seems to are, yeah, keep are. popping out of nowhere.
0: Yeah, abortion. Uh, what else yeah. can I? Uh, yeah. The book is yeah basically a history book. I, I yeah. won't I won't spoil the book to the listeners. I suggest that everyone should read it. There there are just stuff Gary that I'm very amazed about, and I just I'll just try to sample from each of the five parts of the book. Okay, okay, so yeah, I love how you began, as you mentioned, from the very beginning, so in the beginning, there was sanity, so I love that line. It's a totally yeah. different perspective to me of the creation story. can can you expound on this? Yeah,
1: yeah, well, my definition of, well, the definition of truth is, when what is known corresponds to what is, okay? Mm. And that's also the definition of sanity, where you live in accord with how things truly are. Mm. And so the the definition of insanity is the degree to which what is known does not correspond to what is, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if I, I say I'm a good person, that might be true. If I say I'm a great person, that's a little crazy, but if I say I'm the son of God, you know, the creator of all things, that's nuts, right? That's total insanity, because I'm not, and it's completely divorced from how things are. Um, So uh, in the beginning, God creates through his wisdom, and Mm. there's this beautiful pairing of God's wisdom is manifested in creation, so we can know God through creation, Mm. creation is intelligible. We can understand it. There's a order, a Mm. deep order within creation. Um, and of course he, he creates Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve, likewise, you know, they were sane; they understood Mm. how God created and they knew God. And there was this beautiful harmony and, and, uh, it's, you know, it's almost like a symphony in, uh, creation. And, uh, so I go in depth about you know, mm-hmm. just pulling out things from Genesis that you probably never w- paid attention to, right, right? And and ultimately that sets the stage for the first revolt against sanity, which is of course the serpent in the garden. Right.
0: Well, yeah, and you mentioned some things that you might uh, like la- la- that we might not like pay attention to. One thing that blew my mind is your perspective on Adam and Eve eating the the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. And you said in the book that uh, they say you'll, in the book you said they will be the ones to determine good and evil, which is basically moral relativism. So I I didn't see that before, which is a major problem in the world right now. So everything really stemmed from the fall of man.
1: Yeah, in fact, I wasn't going to go all the way back to the beginning originally, <laughs> but I noticed the serpent's lie. There's elements of the serpent's lie that mm-hmm. just echoes throughout history. You know, we keep falling for the same uh, lie, and the lie is basically the serpent tells Adam and Eve, "Look, things aren't really the way they appear." Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, God is holding on on you. He uh, he's keeping you from being a, a better than what you are. Mm. And so he knows that if you eat of the the fruit, that you'll be just like him, okay? Mm. And then he he says, uh, knowing good and evil. And in this context, it would be like determining good and evil. In other words, Mm. God isn't goodness itself that creates things good. Mm -hmm. Behind the serpent's lie, it's like God— arbitrarily chooses what's good and what's bad. And if you come to this knowledge through eating, you too can determine what's good and bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, so there's that divorce again from what is uh, and what is known, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so they they buy into it and they realize it's a total lie, you know, that mm-hmm. the good God really was looking for their in their best interest, and that there was this harmony, and that uh, God doesn't determine good and evil. God is goodness himself, the the measure of good and evil. And uh, man, yeah, it, as you know, Jay, reading the book, it just pops up over and over in different ways yeah. throughout history, the same thing. And, and like you said, it, it, it ends up with not only moral relativism, that you know, we can decide what's good and evil. But I mean, even in gender identity stuff, that oh, yeah. it's our wills that it determine our biology. You know, right. it's not how things truly are, but what we call them, that's what determines mm. who I am as a person.
0: And of course, God has a plan to defeat sin. And as Catholics, as Christians, we, we know this story. So it's a gradual return to the fullness of truth. To reality yeah. to back to reality yeah. so, so after the incarnation uh so this is what we call for for those who don't know th- this is Christ uh, which is why we celebrate Christmas right Christ uh, getting a human form a divine uh, God yeah. taking a human form so Christ established a church and we would think that it's happily ever after after that, but no, because <laughs> chapter two of the book speaks about the heretics. So it occurred to me that many of the second to fourth century heresies prevail until now. Let's yeah. say Arianism, modern day Aryans, those who think, who deny the divinity of Christ, they, they still exist up until now, like, let's say, our friends in the Jehovah's Witnesses, they they claim that the Catholic Church smuggled the belief that Christ is God in the Council of Nicaea. But it could be the other way around. What's the truth here, Gary? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, Well, yeah. Uh, Well, the truth is, and what I say in my book is that the Incarnation, is like the pivotal moment in in human history where God becomes man. And it's like this nuclear explosion, right, that's Mm -hmm. revealed. Because God, the infinite, is united to the finite, the invisible to the visible. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, that Christ uh, takes to himself human nature and that we're united to Christ. And being united to Christ, we become members of his body, the church. Like you said, it's Mm -hmm. this visible, tangible, identifiable society. Yeah. And it's like that blinding light of what occurs in the incarnation, there, there are elements of humanity that want to shrink back, right? They don't want to embrace that, mm. that fusion of those two extremes. And so, yeah, so you have the Arians, for example, who mm. say, well, well, Jesus wasn't completely God. He was kind of created by God. So he's a creature of God, yet he's he's like a lesser God. And like you said, the Jehovah Witnesses, yeah, that's exactly what they believe that he's mm. not almighty God, but he's just God. Yeah. And uh but the problem with that is first it, it's actually a step back into paganism. Because mm. the pagans they believed in the the one, you know, the ultimate God, but they believed in little lesser gods. So mm. uh Arianism was really popular because it was kind of a step back in the paganism where the son is like a lesser God than the father and pagans were fine with that. The problem is it wasn't true. Right. Mm, Yes. Uh, And uh, yeah. And there's all sorts of ramifications that, that come from that. And so the early church, like you said at the council of Nicaea, especially it reaffirmed, no, Jesus is not a creation. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God begotten and not made yeah. right as opposed to arians who said he's not begotten but he's actually made he's mm. uh there was a time when the sun was not and uh, and yeah so arianism even though it was largely stamped out back in the 4th century you know we still have arians today in many different mm. forms you know and jovah witnesses is probably the most popular mm. or most recognizable form
0: mm. a- and you talk about the gnostics as well i I never knew yeah. the Gnostics of the second century were so like the woke culture in some sense. Although they look lowly on womanhood, but for them, women should make themselves male in order yeah. <laughs> to enter the kingdom of heaven. So sounds to me like transgenderism. Uh, also, they are anti-procreative, which sounds to yeah. me like uh, they have the contraceptive mentality and the... Pro-abortion mentality. So-
1: yeah, oddly enough, yeah, that second century—that that's where they attack the other extreme, right? Uh-huh. They say, "Fine, Jesus is God, but the humanity wasn't really human. Humanity—it just appeared to be human, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's all phantom. But you're right, though. The implications of uh, when you start pulling out what's behind their logic." It actually squares a lot like radical feminism, mm. you know, that mm. the only way to uh, for women to succeed is to be more like a man. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And mm. uh, and that includes – and in order to become more like a man, you have to detach yourself from your biology, right? Mm-hmm. So they're pro-abortion because uh, giving birth uh, hinders themselves from being sexually available and other things, uh, you know, and therefore contraceptives. Things like that. Yeah, and Mm. I'm glad you picked (laughs) that up because there's a Gnostic text called the Gospel of Thomas where Uh it actually says that. I mean, that is part of Gnostic thought. And Mm. so once you start playing with the incarnation, either denying Christ's humanity or his divinity, you start running it. You can see the same errors that we have today. Mm. And uh, that's why I trace all the problems back to uh, denial of the incarnation in one Mm. form or another.
0: And I also read about Julian the apostate's government subsidizing charity, and it's very similar to socialism, and yeah, communism, yeah. which is a lot. A lot of our left-leaning friends are are pushing forward these days, so yeah. the themes are repeating. So let's go, Gary, to Islam, because let's face okay. it, they they diverted from the fullness of truth. And they're one of the fastest-growing religions today. So how did Islam originate? And what are the main tenets of their beliefs that led to some of the beliefs that the West have now that affected some of these insanities?
1: Yeah. um, Well, you know, Islam comes up— it's in my book. I actually dedicate a lot more originally material to the the birth of Islam. Mm. That it was in Saudi Arabia, which was kind of the garbage dump of heresies. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people heretics would be expelled from the empire, they ended up in Saudi Arabia. So you had all these heretical Christians uh, there. You also had monks, and you also had some monks that were not quite orthodox. Mm-hmm. And there are some some groups that we can identify today that actually hold beliefs that sound a lot like Islam. Mm. Uh, So when Muhammad comes on the scene, he kind of seems to adopt a lot of these ideas. Now, uh, what happens is, as Islam expands, it's bringing in and rediscovering text of um, of, uh, the Greek philosophers. And so there is a move within Islam to try to integrate philosophy with Quranic revelation, you know, with the Quran. Mm. And uh, so, in other words, faith and reason. The okay. problem is is that the revelation of the Quran is not amenable to reason, okay? It mm. doesn't fit. Mm. Where, you know, before Judaism encountered Greek philosophy, and there was this an, kind of an interesting pairing where faith and reason got along very well, not in Islam. Mm. And so, um, so there were two schools of thought. In Islam, one—I'll just call it the reasonable party and the unreasonable party—just okay. to make it easier without okay. the, the names. And mm. the reasonable party said, "You know, we can reason, God gave us reason, and so we can know, even apart from the Quran, whether something's good or not. Mm. Uh, we can understand justice and things like that just by reason alone." And so we can understand the Quran is revelation that takes part in time, so we can interpret it according to history. Uh, they had all these interesting ideas. Um, the problem is is that the, the unreasonable party were the traditionalists. And they said, no, mm-hmm. it, revelation trumps reason. And one way in which they did this was they separated Allah's uh, what uh, Allah's knowledge from his will. I don't want to get too technical. Okay. But yeah, basically, yeah. they said that Allah could will whatever he wants. Kind of mm-hmm. like with the serpent in the garden, right? God determines mm-hmm. good and mm-hmm. evil. Mm-hmm. So if Allah wants to call something evil and then changes his mind and call it good, he can do that because he's all powerful. He's not constrained by his nature, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So his reason is even beyond. Uh, so we can't know God through nature. Uh, The only way we know God is through the book, and that's why Islam is really a religion of the book, kind of like Protestantism. Mm. And uh, the only way to know something is through uh, what's revealed about it. Uh And this destroys uh, science in Islamic countries because Mm, you you can't do science like that, right? Uh, There's this awesome uh, (laughs) quote that I got from Robert Riley in his book, The Closing of the Muslim Mind, where uh, there is a Muslim scientist who said it's un-Islamic to say when you combine hydrogen with oxygen you get water. Uh. He says what you should say is when you combine hydrogen and oxygen by Allah's will it becomes water.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. So there's no
1: particular properties mm. of hydrogen so, or oxygen. What matters is whatever Allah wills. He yeah. could will it becomes a zebra or a rhinoceros <laughs> or something, yeah. right? So anyway, yeah, mm-hmm. so uh the you have these two diametrical parties. And by the way, the reason party wasn't very reasonable either because mm-hmm. they said that uh, that uh, Allah was under compulsion to do what was right and good. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was that's like the one term you never apply to God in Islam is mm-hmm. compulsion because God, God is above all things. Mm-hmm. Um so it- so that kind of sets the stage for how Islam kind of unfolds, uh-huh. you know, that there's this arrested development because of that separation. Um, ultimately, the unreasonable party wins, mm. and uh, that that idea that God's will is separate from uh, His nature starts seeping into Europe, because eventually, Islamic commentators and the writings of Aristotle start filtering into Europe in the Middle Ages. Mm. And that starts causing problems in Europe.
0: Mm. So so if I just backtrack a bit, you were saying that everything is relative to Allah's will. Mm -hmm. So it it means that if you keep doing the same experiment, the results are only repeatable because Allah wills it and not because God created the laws of nature that dictates the outcome.
1: Yeah, because he, that's something he customarily does. <laughs> it doesn't this, have anything to do with the nature of the things.
0: Is this the same reason why there are not so many famous modern-day Muslim scientists? Uh, because when you search Muslim scientists, it, it's, they're, they're mostly either the early of the millennium or before that
1: yeah 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 it's, it's, um, it plays a big role in that. Of course, you know uh, Stanley Yaki, uh, mm. a physicist and a, um, a priest, a theologian, has written extensively on this. He's passed away, but he he investigates the question, why is it that modern science as a self-sustaining enterprise, why mm. did it take root only in Christian West? Mm-hmm. Because there are lots of scientific discoveries in China, in ancient Babylon, in Greece, even in Islam. You know, there were there were amazing geniuses there in India. But it's only in the Christian West mm-hmm. that science takes off, right? Mm-hmm. And the answer is because, uh, ultimately, it's because Catholic revelation, and I'm, I'm going to be specific because it uses those deuterocanonical books that Protestants don't have, Yeah. Uh, it's this revelation is a very presents a very realistic view of the world, yeah. in a way that these other religions don't have, mm. and so religion becomes what he calls stillborn in these other cultures. Mm. There are discoveries, and maybe a little bit of advancement, but it ultimately dies. It's only mm. through Christian revelation that yeah. uh, because we believe, you know, God is good, He creates all things through wisdom, um, and that. Uh, creation is noble and because God became man and we mm-hmm. know God through Christ's humanity we have a, a natural impetus to, to look for God in the things that he's made and mm-hmm. you don't find that anywhere else
0: mm-hmm. the, the highlight so so let's go to part three now of the book Okay. and the highlight is the protestant revolution so why is it a revolt yeah. rather than an actual reformation as as it was more popular, popularly known. So.
1: Yeah, it's well. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question, uh, it, because yeah, I mean, Luther was Luther wasn't interested in change, uh, rearranging the furniture. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh He wanted a new house.
0: Okay. Okay. That's <laughs> so.
1: Uh, yeah, he retains it, a lot of uh, Christian revelation and and teachings. Actually, a lot more than modern Protestants have today, uh, but. He wanted to change dogma uh. because he believed that he'd rediscovered the true gospel mm. of salvation by faith alone and so on. So he felt that there needed to be a radical change. And not mm. only was it a religious revolution, but there it was also a social revolution mm. because uh, that was right at the time where nationalism was starting to break up Europe into individual countries, you know, uh, without the Roman Empire or the Holy Roman Empire starts Mm -hmm. dissolving. And uh, yeah, so uh, in many ways, he uh, inadvertently undoes a lot of the things that were joined together by God in the Incarnation.
0: Mm -hmm. And from what I read about Protestantism, its teachings sever the union between the body and the soul in such a way that most of the beliefs are anchored only about the health of the spirit that's why we have the faith alone doctrine, apart from good works, and they're opposed yeah. to most of the sacraments. For us Catholics, we believe that what affects the spirit affects the body, and what affects the body affects the spirit or the soul. So, yeah. Yeah. there's yeah, yeah. There's,
1: he inherits uh, that same idea that filtered through Islam that mm. Allah, you know, can declare things. Uh, however he wills. It doesn't matter about the nature. Mm. And uh, that was the uh, the modern way. It's actually mm. kind of modernism before modernism. But anyway, so Luther comes up with this idea that how we're made right with God is that God calls us just, but we don't actually become just. Mm. We're just mm. legally imputed as just. Mm. And so uh, so by doing that, he... he de- divides all these things like you said Mm. it's like now it's the salvation of the soul that's primary not the salvation of the body and soul Mm. uh now uh you know faith and works are are seen as separate things rather than together and you know that it's like a crack in a windshield Mm. right once Mm. you get that little chip it just starts splintering and for luther suddenly everything starts splintering apart so no longer uh, do we have free will and God predestines? Now it's only predestination. We don't have free will. Uh, mm-hmm. Now it, everything is grace and it has nothing to do with uh, human agency. Now everything is uh, faith and, and not by works. Uh, and mm-hmm. even divides like church and state in a way too. Um, mm-hmm. That the, the state is for you know um, the, uh, those who aren't Christian, who aren't spiritual, where the church is more concerned with the interior spirituality and well-being of the soul, you know? Mm, mm. And that has radical consequences, um, Mm -hmm. not only in terms of theology, but also one of the first things Luther uh, gets rid of is the mass, right? Although he still holds on to the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, Mm. he gets rid of the priesthood, he changes the mass, um, and he starts slowly rejecting part by part things that uh, Christians had always held on to, And uh, we could go on and on. But Mm. yeah, you're absolutely right. It just kind of falls apart with him.
0: And you mentioned the separation of church and state. That's where I'm going to next. The the next chapter of your book, the epistemological revolt part of Mm -hmm. the book. And it talks about the religious-secular binary. This sounds awfully familiar to some, quote-unquote, Catholic politicians in the U.S., Because one example is like President Biden, who says he's a devout Catholic, yet he supports abortion. And when and how did the religious secular binary come into prominence?
1: Yeah, well, once Protestantism comes on the scene, that revolt happens. Hmm. What happens is, uh, remember, uh, at that time there were church-state religions, okay? Mm. So mm. church and state were fairly closely united. And so when a country became a different religion or a Protestant denomination, it changed its government as well. And so mm. not only do you have Christianity splintering uh, mm. in an enormous rate, right? Because mm. that unity that was in Christ is lost. But uh, you also have wars breaking out, religious wars, between Catholics and Protestants and between Protestants and Protestants. Mm. And uh, so because of that, they, uh, there was an effort to try to find a way to unite everybody apart from the church, right, apart from Christ. Mm. Mm. And so one of the ways they, uh, that came about was this idea, well, if we just distinguish earthly things from heavenly things— and live in these two spheres of church and state, mm. then uh, then the religious people can have this nice little safe area that could talk mm. about internal mm. spiritual stuff. Mm. Again, you know, it's internal versus the external, the body uh-huh. and the soul, uh-huh. like you mentioned. Uh-huh. And and then we and the state could be concerned about you know things like life, liberty, property, things mm. like that, the earthly stuff. And what they did was they they divested the church of these things because if you think about it. Uh-huh. um what is life? When does life begin mm-hmm. uh is every life sacred uh when should yeah. what's the just way for a life to end? Those are not state questions right yeah, definitely those are religious philosophical questions yes. same thing with liberty and property uh you know it's the same thing yeah but uh what it did was it kind of usurped part of the property and put in this little compartment and he like you said. Uh, you end up with this double-truth thing uh-huh. that uh, people could say, well, as a Catholic, I believe all these internal spiritual stuff, but in terms of living in real life, I can do the exact opposite. You know, And that's A-OK. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> it, and it's, it's insanity, really. It but, is, it uh, but it's one of those ways where, from that point on, from Luther onwards, uh, people are trying to seek a way of uniting people together, apart from that incarnation, apart from mm-hmm. Christ church. And it just snowballs into one problem after another, and, uh, <laughs> and I trace it all in my
0: book. Yeah. Uh, finally, we get to today, the culmination yeah. of all previous revolts, the social revolt. And as we mentioned earlier, there's radical feminism, which shows up sometime in the early 2nd and 4th century, the sexual revolt, the sexual revolution, the one with the yep. birth control pill, abortion, divorce, same-sex marriage, gender confusion. From us here, Gary, in the Philippines who view the Western world from afar, some of the people think that these things are are progress because it's advertised to us as progress. Yeah. C- can you tell us what's happening in the West right now with all these ideological stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, instead of uniting us, as you could tell, it's dividing us, mm-hmm. and that's one thing about that—that that view of God that separates His knowledge from His will, uh-huh. or his, his nature from will. It tends to atomize things; it makes everything individualistic. Mm-hmm. So what happens is everybody's at each other's throat, and you have these weird flags that people like march under that have uh-huh. nothing to do with reality. It's just the uh-huh. like, internal feelings and stuff uh yeah no it, it's utterly destructive and uh and the thing is is that when you live in accord with how things truly are human life flourishes right that's how god designed us to to live
0: yeah
1: when you live in accord with things how they are not mm-hmm. then the, you're going to end up in self destruction and that's kind of the path we're on especially here in america because mm-hmm. remember you know, America really didn't—it's very different from Europe. Mm. Europe was Catholic, and then parts of it became Protestant. In mm. America, at least for, uh, from our perspective, it didn't have that, pro- that Catholic period. It just started as Protestantism. Mm. Uh, mm. The Spanish were here earlier, but uh, they were largely on the way out as we were basically populating America. Huh. So it didn't go through that Catholic phase, and I think what's happening in America is much more accelerated than what's happening in Europe, but they're going to end up the same place we are, mm-hmm. and that is that everybody's at on, at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. In my book, I talk about how we end up in these silos, information silos, mm-hmm. where you just want bias-confirming information, uh-huh. you know, tribal thought, um, and ultimately... it. And this is a spoiler alert for those who are going to read the book, so don't listen. Ultimately, it ends up that we're alone. Right now in America, there's an epidemic of a loneliness uh, because no one has best friends. uh, Mm -hmm. And people are having pets instead of children. Mm -hmm. And so you're alone with the dog and the TV. Ironically, just like Adam was before Eve was created, right? Just alone with the animals, right? (laughs) And God says it's not good for man to be alone. That's why he created Eve. But when you reject the bride, the church, and you try to come up with this unifying way, um, apart from Christ, uh, you end up basically being alone and Mm. dissatisfied and angry. And that's what we're experiencing right now in uh, America and largely in the West as well. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I didn't want to end my book on that note <laughs> because it's such a downer. Yeah. So uh, I finished the manuscript about two years ago. So in uh-huh. the last chapter, I have Reality Strikes Back. Yep. And yep. I talk about how, you know, despite our best efforts to explain away reality, that uh-huh. there are things, even back then, that are pushing out and kind of reasserting itself because the, it's truly real, you know? Yes. It's, it's how things truly are.
0: Yep. So, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are there pressure groups who attack uh, you guys there, uh, Catholic speakers, uh, because people get canceled now for yeah. talking about what is real? And I, I guess I'll end this interview by with the question, how do we respond to, to these revolts as Catholics and how do we find hope in these trying times, Gary?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, my book doesn't offer uh, solutions as much as just an understanding of how we got here.
0: Okay.
1: Um, As Catholics, we need to hold on to our Catholic identity Mm. because that is how things truly are. And ultimately, I think this gives us confidence Mm. because uh, there's no alternative to how things truly are. (laughs) You know, they are what they are, and you can deny reality, but ultimately Mm. that path uh, leads to destruction. And you're really just uh, uh, holding, you know, going after ghosts that don't really exist. Mm. And so, I, I think ultimately, Catholicism is going to be the last man standing, in my opinion, mm. because it's rooted in God. Because mm. Christ is is the Church. We are mm. His body, and we're we have the Eucharist, yeah. and uh, so we're united to how things truly are through God's wisdom incarnate. Where anyone who rejects that or to the degree they reject that, they're just going to perish because Mm -hmm. you can't live, you know, you can't live in accord, uh, out of accord with nature, at least not very long, and you'll be very Mm -hmm. miserable at it,
0: too. (laughs) That's a good thing you said, to stand firm on the faith as Catholics. And if I may add, to, to pass the faith to the kids, to your kids. Yeah have kids <laughs> if you can. Yeah. <laughs> as many as you can. Pass the fate. Yeah. Because one thing I noticed are most of our left-leaning friends, like the feminists, don't bother having kids. They're, they're anti-kids. They're they're, yeah. they're contraceptive. They're, they're pro-abortion. Some of the environmentalists hate men. They think people are the cause of the destruction of nature. That's why they don't uh, procreate yeah. and the those on the gender ideology side they they de- sadly they destroy their reproductive system and it's up to us to to to, to fix this thing and they're on a desperate uh move when they 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 had like the academe <laughs> they, they they used the academe yeah. to indoctrinate our children and, and hollywood yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I addressed that too in that last chap- mm. the last chapter or second from um, last chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but you know what? God's provided tools for us, uh, like uh, homeschooling. Yeah, uh, if if you have public schools that are teaching this kind of ideology, you can mm-hmm. homeschool. Uh, there, mm-hmm. there's lots of alternatives now that weren't there even 20 30 years ago, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so. Uh, Catholic parents should definitely avail themselves and also watch really good Catholic social media like your channel, right? Because mm, thanks. <laughs> uh, you need, we need encouragement, and we need to remind ourselves that the world's getting crazy. We're not, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, Gary. Uh, I'd be remiss if I don't at least ask you on the deuterocanonical books of the Bible. This okay. needs a separate uh, episode. But if you can just give us a quick defense on the seven books of the Old Testament, because you mentioned a bit on it uh, about it that, uh, uh, on, on the science part. Mm-hmm. I think it's in Sirach yeah. and Wisdom, right? So we yeah. really need these books. My Protestant friends often say to me that we Catholics added to the Bible. <laughs> How do we respond to that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, thats a, I love it because it's a historical question.
1: It's not uh-huh. a question of interpretation. We have the records. <laughs> in my book, mm-hmm. Why Catholic Bibles are Bigger, I actually give you the records and the deliberations. The Council of uh-huh. Trent just rubber-stamped the Council of Florence yep. that basically rubber-stamped the 4th century councils of Carthage and Hippo. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, they didn't <laughs> add books, right? Yeah, They're just yeah. rubber-stamping what had already been decided way back in the time of Augustine you know? Mm. Uh, But Protestantism removed these books. Mm. And you can demonstrate this. I Mm. I do this in my book, Why Catholic Bibles are Bigger. I also, by the way, I have a channel called the Apocrypha Apocalypse. Mm. Apocrypha Apocalypse on YouTube. And me and William Albrecht go into all things Old Testament canon. And I have a video series on there where I show Mm. Martin Luther actually used the deuterocanonical canonical books as canonical books in arguments and debates mm. all the way up till 1519 mm. when he was in the debate with Johann Eck on purgatory. And Eck uh-huh. cornered him with Second Maccabees 1246. It's a holy yep. and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they uh-huh. may be loose from his sins. And at that point, Martin Luther said, you can't prove purgatory from any book that can be admitted into debate and serve as proof. He says, Maccabees has weight with the faithful, but it won't prevail against the obstinate. In other words, he says, Maccabees is not part of the canon. You can't use it in debate. Even though Luther used in debate <laughs> prior to that point, uh-huh. <clears throat> from that point on, he never uses these books as canonical scripture. Mm-hmm. And uh, Protestants basically follow Luther. So uh, that's the short answer is, oh, okay. no, we just rubber-stamped. Previous decisions. It was really Protestants who removed these books or lowered the books to non-canonical status.
0: Mm-hmm. Because Luther wouldn't have noticed it if it if it weren't there all along from the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah exactly. And uh, yeah, and so you know, on that program, uh, I have tons and tons of videos where I go into New Testament evidence, uh, the early church fathers. Uh, talk about the councils, and I talk about what happens in Protestantism as well. Mm. Uh, and we cover a lot of really cool stuff. Like, for example, Jan Hus, you know, who is uh-huh. uh, credited like a proto-Protestant. He believed the Deuterocan was inspired. He used them mm-hmm. to serve as proofs. Uh, William Tyndall, another proto-Protestant, mm. <laughs> uh, he also did the same. You know, uh, mm. all of this was before Luther. And then Luther came, he was cornered in a debate, and bang, all of a sudden these books, <laughs> you know, they're not canonical scripture.
0: All right, Gary, we've come to the end of the episode. I'd like to thank you again for responding to my invite. Oh, uh, yeah.
1: You know, I'm honored. Uh, and <laughs> please keep up the great work. I've been watching your videos. and, and like This is a blessing. So uh, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thanks. Uh, please invite the audience to your work. And where can we follow you on social media?
1: Yeah, well, uh, Apocrypha Apocalypse on YouTube, Uh or also handsonapologetics.com. That's my other website.
0: Okay, thanks again, Gary. You're a blessing. This has been another episode of the J.R. Show. At the end of the day, it will be night. Goodbye.